Hello, friends, and welcome to Building Tradition, where we tell stories from designers, builders, and building artisans. History informs the future, and so do our guests. I'm your host, Peter Miller. My guest today on the floor of the American Institute of Architects annual convention in San Francisco is Peyton Hall of Historic Resources Group, an architect headquartered in Pasadena, California. I've known Peyton a long time. I know that he was involved in the restoration of the Pasadena City Hall and the restoration of the Rose Bowl. He's also a teacher at the architecture school, the master's program at University of Southern California. And today, we're continuing our discussion of what architects should know about substitute materials. I should also say that Peyton and I serve on the Historic Resources Committee, a knowledge group within AIA, which is about 6,000 historic architects who do some very significant work on traditional buildings. Welcome, Peyton, and thanks for joining me on this Building Tradition podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Peter. It's been great to know you all these years. As Peter says, I've been practicing historic architecture since about 1980 with Historic Resources Group in Pasadena, California, and I'm an adjunct professor at USC, which is a very satisfying task. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about the projects you're working on lately, but first let's talk about materials and methods. Uh, something both traditional building and traditional building conference series covers pretty regularly. Uh, it's important to getting preservation right. The National Park Service preservation briefs are addressing the topic of substitute materials here to four disapproved of for federal historic tax credit work. But brief number eight covers aluminum and vinyl, ex vinyl exterior, for example. Number 16 discusses the use of substitute materials on historic buildings. We're sitting in the Da Vinci Roofscapes booth. They make a, a composite slate and shake roofing. As a preservation architect, what's your position on substitute materials and what should other architects and contractors and building owners know? If you look at Preservation Brief 16, it's, it's clear that the National Park Service, which is establishing our, our basic principles that we can all uh, have a a conversation about that substitute materials are, are not disallowed. They're, they're actually, to, to read one sentence, uh, directs that substitute materials should be used only where there is a compelling reason not to use the authentic original material, at least when a distinctive feature is involved. Therefore, the National Park Service is telling us that it's okay if we have a compelling reason it's not saying that it's okay to substitute any materials anywhere. We should be thoughtful about it, and, and they will help us along the way to achieve that. If I, if I look at um, the, the materials around us here, for example, which are, are substitute roofing shingles, I think about you know, decades of practice and the many challenges we have uh, in, in everywhere for roofing shingles, but Let's think about Southern California, where most of my practice is, where we have wildfires and which shingles are, are, are forbidden or, or difficult to, to rehab and difficult to replace with wood. And a particular project where 
there was a children's museum and an adapted horticultural facility with wood shingles in a big park where there's a real risk of wildfire. So here you have risk to the, first of all, to the kids and second to the building. Uh, a proposal was put forward for a composite roof shingle material and I completely blanched on the first pass to say, how can you possibly use this material? And the, the architect and the builder said, now wait a minute, you're just looking at a, a single shingle in the construction trailer. Let's do a mock-up of a, of a square of roofing and put it on the roof. And I was completely convinced because we, had, we were compelled to find a substitute. And once I saw it applied, it worked. Do you, do you feel like your clients have a, a position on substitute materials for or against? Well, let's face it, most clients are looking to solve problems. Uh, people who, who own and do the design for and build buildings. So it's, it's very circumstantial. It's not always expedient because our clients understand that they have criteria to meet. They want their projects to, to look good, be good, and to be approved by public officials, local, state, and national. So I don't think there's a, there's a pat answer, but I'm generally positive about it just being a part of good practice. Well, you mentioned how wildfire fires in California, where much of your practice is, uh, preclude using wood shakes. And our host, Da Vinci, has an alternative to a wood shake. But what about uh, what we just learned in the last seminar together, uh, flooding, mm -hmm. rising water? Uh, can substitute materials be a solution in, in a resiliency scenario like that? Uh, definitely. And in, in that connection, I tend to think of wood and wood substitutes since wood is a very uh, moisture sensitive material. We have insects flooding, moles, uh, and not always woods that are, are, are durable. So if you look at the preservation brief and you talk to the National Park Service staff, I'd say these are the, the high level staff that you might be involved with with the tax credit project, there are increasingly alternatives, particularly if, if they're materials that are painted for composite materials uh, using wood or using other materials for siding and even decking that are, that are more durable. Uh, insects don't eat them. They're less vulnerable to you know, rising damp and, uh, and more humid environments as, we, as climate changes. So yes, there, there's a, there are other areas like that that can, that can help to respond, be more durable, and not be destroyed in, say, in a flood or, or a different climate pattern. I'm noticing that a lot of the messaging from substitute material suppliers who have wood uh, substitutes are selling against the fact that they don't make wood the way they used to. So what about historic appearance and authenticity? Um, I know it's an important consideration by the SHPOs and other historic commissioners. Um, can an architect achieve this with most of today's substitute materials? Uh, yes, and <clears throat> I, I'm going to um, give you a bit of a, a very brief bullet list of 
of criteria for, for when we look at substitute materials, because I think this is very instructive and responsive to your question. Um, so when would we be looking at a substitute material? It's based on, number one, unavailability of original, to unavailability of historic craft techniques and artisans. You know, this is a big challenge. You know, we don't, we don't have people who do plaster uh, for the most part, or very few of them. Uh, number three, building materials of inadequate durability, as we were just saying about wood. Number four, replacement of a secondary feature, so something that's maybe not as significant. And five, code-related changes. So within that context, and talking to, to regulators or to your, to your conscience or to the National Park Service, you have at least five different areas you can go to and say, this is why I am compelled, I must look for a substitute, no matter where it is and what it is. Are there any composite ingredients that you would watch out for, accept, not accept? Well, I, I have two thoughts about that, Peter. One is that um, quality is still number one concern. So if I, I mentioned the use of, of wood substitutes for decking, and they've come a long way. You know, if we looked at 10 or 20 years ago, we had some composite decking materials that did not respond well to moisture and, and heat and radiation over a short period of time. So you, you would end up having a, a really bad outcome in a short time and have to redo it. And those products are changing and evolving. So you, you need to know your homework, know how to do specs, know your product, see how it's held up if you can over a number of years so that you don't end up with the wrong product. Um, the other is that I have a, a great example that I actually learned in San Francisco about 20 years ago after the, uh, the Loma Prieta earthquake on, on touring with National Park Service staff. And that is that they were using fiberglass, you know, good grief, fiberglass uh, to replace glazed uh, terracotta uh, at rooftop finials and parapets because it had already broken twice. And now they were facing uh, more terracotta. Well, the, the substitute is fiberglass because it's on the top of a high-rise building. So location on the building is a big factor in determining what works and what doesn't. You know, is it at your eye and, and uh, finger level where you can feel it and see it? Or is it 50 stories up on the top of a building right. where honestly you can't tell the difference? Right. And we did exactly that in the, the replication of the clock on the top of the Tower Theater, which you featured in traditional building on your thanks, cover. Thanks for the plug. Because it's lightweight, and at that elevation, you can't tell that it's not terracotta. Does it have to weather over time like natural material does? And what would your expectation be about a roof warranty, 25, 50, lifetime? I think that your, your goal with substitute materials is to, to meet your, your regular um, performance requirements for, for specs and guarantees. I think the, the, the more important question is um, in terms of making that decision to go from restoration of original to substitute materials, what is the, the life cycle of glazed terracotta and what maintenance do we need? Uh, and perhaps most difficult, 
if we're going to patch the original material instead of substitute it, the patches are going to need a maintenance cycle. As you think about different building types, there's you do institutional buildings, you've done commercial buildings. Is there a difference between the building owner's attitude, whether it's commercial or institutional? What I think about is maybe the commercial building owner is, I mean, he might be satisfied with a shorter warranty. What, what's your view on that? I think the, the, the reality of, of, um, of practice, real estate, and building is that a you know an investment property, whether it be an apartment, condo, or office building, is going to face uh, you know really tight budget challenges, and sometimes the decisions are made that we'll we'll take the the easier, less expensive way, and we'll do the maintenance that we need to do in five, 10, 15 years. And once everybody leaves the project, the maintenance often is ignored until it's it's compelling to, to do the maintenance. Whereas if you're dealing with a historic house museum and good management, you know that you're going to bring um, the highest level of, of work and, and maintenance and inspections uh, annually. So they are two very different types of projects. So, in your classroom at USC, are you talking to the students about methods and materials? Yes, I, I am really, um, I, I'm making their heads explode, I think, on a regular basis. <laughs> Good. Because on the one hand, I'm trying to present them the very best possible way of doing things, like how do we conserve the Gamble House, one of America's most important houses that's made of very fragile wood materials outside and in. And then on the other hand, I'm showing them case studies. Uh, I have to say not so much about explaining why things go wrong, but how we made uh, collaborative decisions to solve problems and get things done when it's not the Gamble House. Well, and, speaking of the Gamble House and the Rose Bowl, which we mentioned earlier, I mean, are your students in awe of being able to do work on those iconic buildings? Is that part of what motivates them to take your class? Yes, we, we have a, a group of very motivated students at the master's level who made a decision that they want to be historic preservation professionals or they need to know this as part of their, their practice. And I have to say, I'm, I'm so buoyed over these years by seeing an ever-increasing high level of participation and excitement. They're there for a reason, because th this is a motivating factor. Cultural heritage matters. These are interesting, worthwhile projects for them, them to get involved in in their careers. So what advice would you give to the providers of alternative materials, substitute materials, like our host today, Da Vinci Roofscapes, what advice would you give them on how to support architects? Um, read Preservation Brief 16. It's, it's not that, um, it's not rocket science. You can There's find that on the National Park Service website. Yes, uh, just, yeah, Google Preservation Brief 16 right. or PB 16. Uh, read it so so you know what what we're all thinking uh, in the preservation world, and then talk to your 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 architects 
And I would say, talk to your regulators. Don't be afraid to ask. Um, one thing I've learned among others in, in all these decades of practice is that uh, I don't know everything and I'm often not the decider, but uh, I know enough to ask. And that means if I have to talk to, if I feel really insecure about substituting a product or a material in an application, I, I can call the people in Washington, D.C., as well as my SHPO staff or my, my city staff and say, you know, we have this problem. Let me explain it to you. And here's what we're thinking about as a solution. What do you think? There's, uh, you don't have to stew in your own juices. You can get some help with this. Would you make that call to the Park Service in Washington or to the local SHPO, even if it wasn't a tax credit project? Uh, if it were the Rose Bowl or the L.A. Memorial Coliseum, which is a natural historic landmark, yes, I would. Uh, even if they they are in not in the same regulatory position, they would be for a tax credit project. Um, otherwise, I I would be more likely, depending on the context of the project, to start with my local reviewer, so that I, um, you know, we need to spot issues, we need to solve problems, not not hit walls. So we want people to know at the local level what we're doing when they are interested in or have a, have an oversight on historic preservation. So having restored the Rose Bowl, do you now have season tickets to Trojan football games? Well, uh, I'm happy to say that we're starting up the next phase of work. It turns out that stadiums are never finished. And I think I can get credentials anytime I want to. <laughs> well, the stadium may never be finished, but that concludes our podcast, Peyton Hall. Thank you so much for joining us today in the Da Vinci Roofscapes exhibit booth at the American Institute of Architects annual convention in San Francisco. Thank you, Peter. I'm Pete Miller, and you're listening to Building Tradition, brought to you by Traditional Building Magazine. Subscribe on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Mm-hmm.